Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the account of the Son of a Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Thank you, Robbie. Now, Matt and I, my husband, we really like living in Nebraska though we have a whole lot left to explore because, well, we've been living here in a pandemic longer than we didn't live here in a pandemic. Yesterday, we started a list of restaurants that we want to eat at once restaurant, uh, once eating at restaurants becomes a thing again. It might get kind of long <laughs> before we get there. But we like Nebraska, though one thing that I'm still working on embracing is the current state tourism motto. You guys know what it is, the actual tourism motto? I have a picture. I brought. Let's see the, that slide. <clears throat> Nebraska. Honestly, it's not for everyone. <laughs> honestly. It first appeared in 2018, and I checked. It is still the official tourism pitch for the state of Nebraska. It's all over the Visit Nebraska website, and this is what they say about it. We get it. Some people will write Nebraska off and never give it another thought or another chance, but we also know there are enlightened truth seekers out there willing to take the time to find out what makes our beautiful state so appealing, charming, and disarming. What a pitch. So we who are, oh, go, no, don't take it off. Put it back up there. We who are wise enough to see what's so great about Nebraska, we are a special breed, they're telling us. We are smart. We are enlightened truth seekers. Don't worry about those coastal elites who can't imagine anything good coming out of the middle of the country. We know what's what, and we know a treasure when we found it, Nebraska. Honestly, it's not for everyone. <laughs> Before I moved here, I had not heard this catchy slogan for the state. I thought, honestly, that the Nebraska state motto was what we still see on highway road signs, as Rebecca said, and I have a picture of that too. Welcoming us across the border. There it is. They're all over the state. Nebraska, the good life. It seems that a lot of Nebraskans are still attached to this slogan as well. I found an article from the World Herald in 2014 that when the state tourism board announced that they were gonna be looking for a new state motto, the process that I assume led to Nebraska, honestly, it's not for everyone, they got all this feedback from the public that they had better not mess with these highway signs. I do not change the highway signs, they said. And the article said that this actually comes from uh, 1971, so it's been around for a long time. The um, then governor, Jim Exon, who wanted to replace a tourism tagline that was then in use, unwind in Nebraska, 
that's what they had. He wanted to change it. And so uh, Stan Matsky, who was the state's Department of Economic Development said that in a discussion with colleagues, uh, someone said, Nebraska is a great place to live. And someone else said, Nebraska is the good life. And they said, that's it, that's the slogan. And there it went up on the signs and it's welcomed travelers to the state and welcomed Nebraskans home ever since the early 70s. I really like how simple it is. I like also that it's an invitation. Here is the good life. Here is the good life. It's simple. But if we wanted to explain it, how would we do that? If we wanted to tell somebody and go deeper, just tell them how it is so good to live here, what's so great about living in Nebraska, how, how would we find the right words to bust through their preconceived notions about Nebraska and convince them about what good is to be found here? You know, sometimes I wonder if this is the same challenge that actually confronted Jesus when he started talking about the kingdom of God. I mean, the people around him had all kinds of ideas, all kinds of preconceived notions about who God is and what God wanted for the world. And some of those were probably good ideas and some of them were pretty unhelpful. So as Jesus looked at the crowds and he wanted to invite them into this place called the kingdom of God, did he ask himself, how am I gonna explain this to them? How in the world will I find the right things to say to show them who God is and what God is really up to in the world? That's what Jesus wanted to do is teach the crowds about the goodness of the God-following life. But he had a problem in that what he needed to teach them was gonna run counter to a lot of what they assumed they knew about how the world works. So what would be the right things to say? What would be the right stories to tell to help them see the goodness of the good life of faith, even if at first it doesn't look all that good? Well, his response to that challenge, the challenge of explaining to people what is actually the good life, is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter six. This is a big section of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Plain. And it gets that name because it has a lot of the same teaching as what we find in the Gospel of Matthew, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, except for Luke's version's a little shorter, a little more compact. And in Matthew, Luke, uh, Jesus goes up the hillside to teach, Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, he comes down the mountain and steps onto a level place. So scholars, so brilliant, they called it the Sermon on the Plain on the level plane. As we move through this season of Lent, I want us to look uh, more closely at these teachings together as we prepare ourselves for Easter. I want us to look and see what Jesus lays out for us about what makes the life of a disciple the good life, what makes the life of searching for the kingdom of God the good life. Now, earlier this week, I was driving up to the UNMC campus for yet another doctor's appointment, and as I exited I-80 on 42nd Street, I noticed a guy standing there on the corner. You can imagine this because you have seen this several times in your own life, I'm sure. He was wearing camo gear, dingy and dirty, as happens when someone spends a lot of time outside. I hope that he had long underwear under, on under what he was wearing because it was still only about 15 degrees that morning. As I got closer, I could see he was holding a cardboard sign that said, anything helps. You know, these encounters always hurt my heart just a little. I cannot imagine the monotony of standing on a corner all day, hoping that you get enough cash to make it worth it. 
And I also wonder about the variety of scowls and frowns and angry glares that gets directed at someone who's begging like that on the corner, or maybe they get yelled at or have things even thrown at them. People can be so cruel. As I pulled even closer, I noticed that this particular man was standing with a crutch under each arm. And I looked and I saw that the left leg of his pants was pinned up at the knee. He was an amputee. Now my heart twinged with compassion, but the light was green and I didn't stop. I drove on to my doctor's appointment, so I can't tell you his story. Later that day, though, I came home and I was working on my sermon for today and I read Jesus say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Did Jesus mean the guy on the corner of 42nd and I-80? Blessed is he? How in the world is that possible? Here I I could go into some long explanation of the Greek word translated blessed, but I don't think that's really going to help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Because it seems like Jesus is trying to describe the world in an upside-down way, and I actually think that's exactly what he's doing. Remember, he's trying to help his disciples live a life seeking after the kingdom of God. And that means learning to see the world the way God sees the world. And Jesus announces from the very beginning of this sermon with these blessings and these woes that the way we see the world is not the way God sees the world. If we were given the chance to finish off Jesus' statements, blessed are you who, how would we do it? Or better yet, how would the world around us do it? I don't think it would have anything to do with that guy who was asking for help at the corner of 42nd and I-80. Blessed are you who have high-paying jobs, we might say. Blessed are you who have plenty of money in the bank. Blessed are you who went to expensive colleges. Blessed are you who drive really nice cars. Blessed are you who take big vacations. Those are the kind of markers we use to decide who among us is really fortunate. Or maybe it's, blessed are you who have a big YouTube following. Blessed are you who have become internet famous. Blessed are you who get invited to all the biggest parties. Blessed are you who don't have to work a day in your life. Whatever measure we would choose to use, I doubt it would be blessed are you who are poor and hungry and who weep. And what's true for us was no different for Jesus' original audience in ancient Israel, except they didn't have the internet. That is one difference. But wealth and fame and big houses and nice clothes and big parties, those were all still their measures of success. And Jesus is turning it all on its head. He said, those are not the people who actually have everything going for them. And why not? Because he's looking toward the kingdom of God. He's looking toward the moment when God's values become the world's values. He's looking toward the day when God's reign and rule are fully realized on earth. And when that happens, Jesus is saying, the ones who have been left out, the ones who have been kicked down, the ones who have suffered, they're going to be the ones lifted up and renewed and restored and filled Jesus is trying to tell the crowd in front of him that their current reality is not their forever reality. 
God has different values than the world around us, and one day God's values are going to be fully realized. Now, this comes as incredibly good news to some people in the crowd, especially the poor, the hungry, and those who are weeping. But as we read it, we have to admit that it's not quite as good news to others in the crowd and to those of us reading it today. And just to make sure that we really get the point about how upside down the world is compared to God's worldview, unlike in the Gospel of Matthew, here in Luke, Jesus adds some woes. He makes it clear that the world upside down with God's will is really upside down, so that those who are on the bottom are going to get lifted up, and those who are on top are going to slide down to the bottom. So Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Now, on the face of it, this sounds kind of bad. I I mean, for me personally. Because I've never been truly hungry. Like, really wanting to eat and not knowing where my next meal was coming from. I've never had that happen. And that's unlike a few billion people in the world and a few million people here in the United States that have had that experience. I've not had it once in my whole life. And compared to some people, I am far from rich, but compared to the 1.9 billion people who live on less than $2 a day, I'm wealthy beyond imagining. Did you know, even here in Nebraska, the median household income, the median household income is $61,500. So compared to the majority of the population here in the state, Matt and I are sitting very, very comfortably. You know, and I have shed tears more than once in the last year over unexpected hardship or disappointment. But my days are much more full of laughter than they are weeping. So I'm not hungry, I'm not poor, I'm not weeping. Woe to me, Jesus? Really? I mean, maybe. Because Jesus' hope is to save me. It's to save us. And that saving can come in different forms depending on what it is we need. And if I refuse to hear that the current reality of the world is not the eventual reality of the world, if I refuse to listen to Jesus and understand that the privileges I have now are what God wants for the whole world, not just a lucky few, if I refuse to see the world the way God sees the world, then perhaps woe to me indeed. See, friends, I see a little use today in denying that, that I and, and most of you listening to me right now at St. Paul's, that we are in the camp of people who are full and rich and laughing and well-spoken of. To anyone here who's currently in a state of poverty or hunger or being reviled or weeping, well, Jesus' message is definitely a message of comfort for you today. But to the rest of us, it's not a message of comfort. It's a message of challenge. It is a message meant to save us, no doubt, but it is a message of challenge. 
and a way for Jesus to tell us that our stuff, our comforts, our material security can get in our way. It's a warning Jesus is giving us that we can be so happy and satisfied with our lives that we fail to remember how dependent we are on God and we can forget that not everyone lives life the way we do. We can so easily just live our lives and neglect our neighbors. And that's exactly the opposite of what the kingdom of God is about. That is not the good life. Now, if you are one who's comforted today by Jesus' list of blessings, if you're struggling financially, if you're feeling abandoned or alone, if you're being oppressed in some way or you're being bullied, take heart. God sees you and your suffering. God desires for you to be lifted up and helped. God is at work even now bringing light and restoration to your struggle and your current reality will not be your forever reality. But for those of us that are challenged by this scripture instead, I think we have three ways we can respond. We're not condemned to be in woe in the future. Jesus instead wants us to respond with faithfulness, with seeking discipleship, with reaching out for the good life he's offering. And three ways I think we can do that. First of all, be generous, a lot. I mean a whole lot. When we see how fortunate we are compared to our neighbors, our faithful response is to share, to be that very source of blessing that Jesus promises in the first part of the scripture. So, give three bucks to the guy that you see at 42nd and I-80. You're gonna spend more than that on coffee on the way home from the doctor's appointment. Oh, I mean, I'm gonna spend more than that on coffee on the way home from the doctor's appointment. When we see a need around us, let us who have much respond generously and without complaint. Secondly, don't take pride in the comforts of your life, but instead respond daily to God with gratitude. I'm not saying you haven't worked hard to to be where you are and have what you have. Of course you have. Of course you've worked hard and you've been successful but others in the world work hard every day and they never get ahead. We are not rich because we're better people somehow. Can I just say that again? We're not rich because we're better people somehow. And so our faithful response to having comfortable lives is to be grateful, not to be puffed up with self-importance. And finally, Let's realize that our comfortable lives do not give us some kind of leg up spiritually. In fact, being well-fed and able to pay our bills and take vacations and buy lattes, it's, it's likely a stumbling block to our spiritual health. All that stuff can get in the way of remembering how much we need God. Why should I spend time in prayer when I already have everything I already need? We can get too comfortable and lose that spiritual seeking sense that Jesus asks. So Jesus asks us to return to God and pray for God's help in seeing and living toward that kingdom, stretching out, always looking and living toward that kingdom. So we might pray things like, help me see the world like you see the world, God. Help me be generous in all the ways you would have me be generous. Help me love others like you love. Those are the kind of prayers that will help us get past the stumbling block of our stuff and be in tune with the good life that Jesus is describing in this Sermon on the Plain.
And what's that look like in real life? One clear example that I saw this week was a guy named Jim Mac Jim Mac in, in Ingvale, Jim McInvale, also known as Mattress Mac. You might have seen his story in the media. He's a furniture store owner in Houston. And according to an article in the Washington Post, he opened up his gallery furniture stores to people who fled Hurricane Katrina in 2005. He did it again for Hurricane Harvey in 2017 and Tropical Storm Imelda in 2019. And this last week, he did it again for people who had been hit by this winter storm that left three million Texans without power and running water. I mean, he really just invited anybody who wanted to come into his showroom, onto his fancy furniture, to sleep, to watch TV, to hang out, to get a hot meal. The article said since Tuesday, about 350 people a night took him up on his offer, and 800 a day have come in to get coffee, snacks, warm up, or get a meal in the cafeteria. He had a big generator with 15,000 gallons of diesel fuel, but only one faucet was working in his stores. So you know what he did? He brought in portable toilets and he rigged up a special flush system in the restrooms with extra water. He paid for food vendors to come and bring in tacos and enchiladas and hamburgers and hot dogs and breakfast burritos. He went all out for hospitality. And why did he do it? He said, to whom much has been given, much is expected. It's the right thing to do. Mackenbell said he knew he needed to offer up the beds and sofas again at, at his stores after he witnessed a sad scene while he was driving to church on Valentine's Day. He said, I saw some cops putting a sheet over a homeless guy who had frozen to death. He said, that really got me. I decided then that I'd open the stores to everyone if it got really bad, and it did. He and his employees made sure everyone had masks and they were safely distanced from each other. And then the guy passed out blankets and sweatshirts and donuts and bags of chips and bottled water left over from Super Bowl Sunday. One woman who showed up after the pipes had burst in her condo, she said, it was 17 degrees inside our house. We could see our breath. I lost the feeling in my toes and my mom's nose was bleeding. When my neighbor told me about this place, I knew we had to get out of there. Another person taking shelter said, we're so grateful to have learned about this place. Their generosity is incredible. It's been like an adventure for the kids staying here. That first night they fell asleep on a diagonal sofa, happy and warm. This is a guy who gets it, Mattress Mac, that what he has can bless others. And when he uses that to reach out to people in need, he is falling in line with the kingdom of God. He's seeing the world like the way God wants the world to be. He is reversing those blessings and woes. He's living the good life. May we do the same. Amen.